0: probably need a Bible if I'm going to be up here. Beautiful, beautiful hymn. One of my favorite hymns. A prayer to the Lord for Him to be our vision, for Him to be our treasure. All too often in life, He's not having the rightful spot that He ought to have in our hearts. So, we are... On the tail end of the book of Leviticus, if you're visiting with us, we work our way through books of the Bible, and we are at the end of Leviticus. This is the caboose. And so in Leviticus chapter 27, begins on page 178 in the church Bible, reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to the valuations of persons belonging to Yahweh. If your valuation is of a male 20 years, even to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels of silver. If it be from 5 years even to 20 years old, then your valuation for the male shall be 20 shekels, and for the female, 10 shekels. But if they are taken from a month even up to 5 years old, then your valuation shall be 5 shekels of silver for the male. And for your female, your valuation shall be 3 shekels of silver. If they are from 60 years old and upward... If it is a male, then your valuation shall be fifty shekels. I'm sorry, fifteen shekels, and for the female, ten shekels. But if he is poor, then your valuation, then he shall be presented before the priest, and the priest shall value him according to the means of the one who vowed, the priest shall value him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him for help. Lord God Almighty, we come before you and we pray with the psalmist open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your law, for we are sojourners. We pray with the Apostle Paul may the eyes of our heart be enlightened that we may know what is the hope of your calling, what are the glories of the riches of the inheritance of the saints, and what is your power toward us who believe. Lord, your servants long ago acknowledged their need for your spirit to do his work to give us eyes to see. And so, Lord, I pray far beyond the abilities, my abilities to communicate that you would open up your word to your people, that they may feast upon who you are and that the lost might come and drink deeply the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thomas Cramner was the Archbishop of the Canterbury, Archbishop of Canterbury in the Church of England in the mid part of the 1500s. He was very instrumental in the English wing of the Reformation. He was also famous for writing what would become known as the Book of Common Prayer, which was uh, basically a kind of liturgy for the Church of England, from which virtually all wedding liturgies, at least amongst Protestants, come today. And so, he instructed Church of English clergy, when officiating Weddings, to say something like this as the bride and the groom approach the altar. Wilt thou have this woman to be thy wedded wife? To live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony. Wilt thou love her, comfort her, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health? And forsaking all others, keep thee only to her so long as you both shall live. Please respond, I will so Cramner wrote so many years ago that liturgy that I think encapsulates something of the heart of devotion in those wedding vows, those promises that a husband makes to a wife, especially that phrase, forsaking all others, keeping yourself only unto her. It's a statement of devotion, of commitment. It's a promise that in our contemporary culture we make to one another. Well, ancient Israel was in a promise, in a covenant relationship with her God, Yahweh, God of Israel, who had brought her out of the land of Egypt And had entered into a covenant relationship. That is even likened unto the marriage relationship. And some of that covenant we saw last week in Leviticus chapter 26. That there was blessings and cursings promised. Blessings for fidelity in the covenant. And cursings for infidelity in the covenant and it's on the heels of that as God promises his faithfulness in in both bringing blessings and cursings that the end of the book of Leviticus ends with highlighting our covenant commitment to the Lord our faithfulness to the Lord especially as it relates to vows now some of the um, some of the commentators on this chapter tell us that, well, this because it, it does, quite frankly, at an initial reading seem out of place, right? You know, it, it seems like chapter 26 is the pinnacle of the book of Leviticus, where God summons his people to faithfulness promises them blessings, warnings that warns them of cursings if they turn away from him, and then it should mic drop end, right? But then we have this odd chapter at the end here. And so they people who don't really believe Moses is the author of this these first five books, they say some editor added this at the end. But the the funny thing is is editors in the real world they, they never actually make the reading more difficult do they 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 always smooth things out so an editor in my opinion would cut out chapter 27 here and say this doesn't belong here let me just take it out okay but I think when you understand chapters 25 26 and 27 go together in 25 you remember uh, with the year of jubilee and all the land stipulations and all the language of redemption parallels chapter 27 here and all this language of redemption and Pricing and valuing and stuff like that. And then the middle of it is chapter 26. So so really, there, there is a very real sense in which chapter 26 was the pinnacle of the book of Leviticus. So I know that sounds very anticlimactic as we enter in chapter 27. But it's just how the ancient writers wrote. They don't write like us. This was a kind of what's called a chiasm at the end here. And the center was chapter 26. And so now we have basically... The bun of the burger because we ate the burger last week in chapter twenty six. That's how I always describe it with food. You know, <laughs> works for me. So we're in this business in chapter twenty seven of vows. Okay, now vows in the Bible uh, are, are spoken of. A vow is something where you promise that that you're not necessarily obligated to obey or it's an area of freedom and you make a promise to God and so in chapter 27 it's it's talking about vows and difficult vows and 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 what happens if you make a vow to serve the Lord but uh you know you you maybe can't carry out the particulars of that vow or Uh, it's impossible for you to carry it out because, namely, you're not a Levite and you're not serving in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. What do you do then? And so, this is what we're going to see here. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21 says, When you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For Yahweh your God will surely require it of you, and it will be sin to you. However, If you refrain from vowing, it will not be sin in you. You shall be careful to do what goes from your lips just as you have voluntarily vowed to Yahweh your God that which you spoke with your mouth. So later on in Torah and Deuteronomy chapter 23, God says, okay, when you make a promise, a vow to God, you need to make sure you keep it. Now, you don't necessarily have to make a vow. But if you do, you better keep it. Remember, even in the New Testament context, Ananias and Sapphira found that out the hard way, right? They they promised that they were going to bring the proceeds of all of their estate. Now, they didn't have to. God never says you have to sell all your property and, and give it to the church. Give all of it to the church. They didn't have to. But that they said that they were. And they lied about it and God struck them dead. And so it's a, it's a serious matter. Now, you may also be thinking, well, doesn't Jesus say something about vows? You'd be correct. In Matthew chapter 5, and verse 33 through 37, evidently in the context in which the religious leaders would often make vows with their fingers crossed. They would say things like, I swear by the temple. And then somebody would call them on and say, well, you said you swore by the temple. Oh, I didn't swear by Yahweh's temple, so, you know, I don't have to actually carry out that promise. And so it's in that context that Jesus says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God or by the earth, or by its footstool, or by his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. So what's Jesus saying then? Jesus is saying that you should never, I I don't believe he's saying you should never make oaths there. One of the ironies about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is trying to abolish the kind of um, rule making that the Pharisees adhere to and go to the heart. And so we read the Sermon on the Mount and we go to the rules and not to the heart. (laughs) I don't think Jesus is saying you should never make a vow. He is saying you should be of such integrity that when you say yes, when you make a promise, it comes about. You are a man or woman of your word. Okay? So that's kind of a little bit of a backdrop of what the Bible says about oaths and promises, vows. So now let's dive into it. We're going to see three different areas of devotion uh, to Yahweh when it comes to vows, okay? The first we see is devote your whole person to Yahweh. Devote your whole person. And this is what we see here. In verse 1, it says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. Say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow he shall be valued according to the valuation of the person, person's belonging to Yahweh. Now, it's not exactly clear what is meant here. When he says a difficult vow, does that mean a vow that you made a promise to do something and, and, and you're not able to do this, so this is plan B? That's one possibility. But there's also a possibility that There there were certain vows that could be made that it was assumed you couldn't actually carry it out, namely, as we're going to see here, service in the tabernacle. Because there were certain genealogical, genetic requirements for you to be able to serve in the tabernacle, namely, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. And if you weren't, then you could not be carrying out the daily uh, chores in the tabernacle and so that could be the situation where you're you're in a situation in your life where you want to just commit yourself unto Yahweh fully pour yourself out but you realize you can't serve as a Levite, maybe you're of the tribe of Benjamin or maybe you're of the tribe of Issachar and you say but I want to commit myself to Yahweh and so there was a valuation system that if you were to commit your life to Yahweh in the tabernacle what value would that be what monetary value would be placed on that verse 3 if Your valuation is of a male, 20 years even to 60 years. Then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Now, if you're wanting to do math in your head as far as, you know, how much is a shekel, um, there's one hint maybe from Judges 17 as far as uh, the annual wage of that rogue priest in Judges 17 was ten shekels uh, for the year, okay. So you know, roughly, you know, ten shekels might be an annual wage in the ancient world. So, um, so here the valuation for a male who's 20 to 60 years old would be 50 shekels of silver for a female. 30 shekels of silver between that same age category of 20 and 60 years. Now, then he goes to the younger people. If it be uh, dedicating somebody from 5 to 20 years old, then the valuation of your male shall be 20 shekels, female 10 shekels. Verse 6, from a month even up to 5 years, the valuation shall be 5 shekels of silver for the male, and for the female, three shekels. If they are from 60 years and upward, so now the older group, if it is a male, 15 shekels, for the female, 10 shekels. But if he is poorer than your valuation, then he shall be presented before the priest, and the priest shall value him according to the means of the one who vowed. The priest shall value him. Now, if you're reading that carefully you will notice there are different values based off of both age and sex, okay? Both how old you are and whether you are male or female. Now, you may look at this and say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Why are women valued less than men? Or if you're a young person, you may say, no fair. Why am I of less value than somebody who's 20 to 60 and I'm only 12 years old? Or, if you're over 60, you may look at that and say, why is my value less than, you know, somebody who's 30 years old? Okay. Well, you have to understand the valuation here is not based, is, this is not saying, you know, males between, you know, age 20 and 60 are, uh, you know, of, of more value before God than females. Uh, or the, you know, 20 to 60 group is of more value than children. As if children were subhuman. Okay? The valuation was based off of economic realities. Based off of practical Value of economic reality is the kind of work that one would be able to do. And this should make sense. Every once in a while you hear a politician get up and talk about the wage gap. Did you ever hear that language? The wage gap. The wage gap between men and women. And I always just want to slap the politician when they bring up the wage gap. Because... Almost always what they're doing when they're saying that men are paid more than women is they're comparing apples and oranges, okay? They're not comparing apples and apples. They're taking all the incomes, the average income of women, comparing it with all the average income of men. In other words, they're not taking, let's say, all the male registered nurses of the same level of education same years experience and comparing it with female registered nurses and and making a comparison there because if they did then their, you know their whole critical theory thing would be blown out the window okay because they would see it's actually the same okay there's no, you know you know rigged system against women okay and, and and one of the things that is also not explained when comparing the numbers of wage differences between the average age of men and uh, average wage of men and average wage of women is the reality that there are certain jobs where one does not have to have uh, a lot of higher education that a man will be involved in that a female will not be involved in. Namely, those jobs that, you know, Dirty jobs, <laughs> you know, where the intense physical labor uh, that a woman might not be able to do, you know, for instance, my father was a garbage man, he picked up, you know, 20, 60, 80 pounds, sometimes 100 pound drums of garbage, threw them in the truck for hour after hour, not, not those robots that, you know, do this, you know, the old school kind, okay? Now, quite frank, a woman would not survive. Even, you know, I remember doing that in my teenage, early college years and the sissy was coming out in me with that kind of work, you know? That is some intense physical labor, okay? God designed men and women different and there are certain physical jobs that are of more value because getting somebody to do it is a hard task and so you have to pay a higher wage to get somebody to do it. Okay, and that, so that's basically what's going on here. Is that there's a certain higher monetary value for certain age brackets. As well as male versus female. Because of the amount of work that could have been done by either group. Now when we look at the scripture. There's, there are two instances in the Old Testament of devoting, dedicating, vowing persons unto the Lord. You remember the one was with Samuel in the book of Samuel, right? Hannah's praying, crying out for God to open her womb, give her a son, and she vows to God in her prayer that if God gives her a son, she will dedicate him to the tabernacle. And so she does. And we see, you know, little Samuel in the tabernacle working and she even sews him up a nice little robe in the tabernacle. But but again, what if one wasn't able to serve? What if one said, you know, I want to dedicate my son to the Lord, but I'd still like to raise him. Okay, which is often you know sometimes a puzzling thing. We often use Hannah as a model mother, and you think, well, you know, you kind of step back and say, well, she gave up her baby. But, so if you wanted to devote them to the Lord, but not necessa- but still raise them, still have them in your home, you may say, I'm going to devote my little Samuel unto the Lord. And so that would mean if Samuel's under five here, he's a male, that's five shekels. Five shekels, you know, maybe half a year's wages that I'm going to give to the Levites for them to use as they see fit. I said there was two examples, didn't I? The other one's not so wholesome. (laughs) That one is in the rated R book of the Bible, the book of Judges, I think somewhere around chapter 13, you remember, Jephthah says, whatever comes out of, Lord, if you give me victory in battle, whatever comes out of my house, I'm going to devote to the Lord devote to Yahweh now some commentators say he thought you know the dog was going to come out of the house no he probably thought a servant might come out of the house but you remember what happened it was his daughter his only daughter who comes out and you remember it would appear he actually went through and sacrificed his daughter which was a very very pagan thing to do I mean remember Leviticus chapter 18 sacrificing to Molech, sacrificing children that was a common pagan practice and so that actually highlights how awful that was that there would appear according to Leviticus chapter 27 actually have been a means by which Jephthah could have given money instead of his own daughter yikes you thought your father was mean (laughs) and so what we see in this regulation of vows was that there was there were occasions by which ancient Israelites could devote persons whether it was their children whether it was themselves And there were certain monetary values that would be placed upon the individual as to highlight they are dedicating, they're devoting themselves unto Yahweh in the tabernacle. Which, obviously, we, you know, nobody's ever come to me and said, you know, I'm going to dedicate my child to the Lord. You know, here's, $50,000. $50,000. Use it in the church however you see fit. Okay? But nonetheless, we do see something of, through these regulations, that it evidently must have been something in ancient Israel of a way to devote your whole person to the Lord. And it should cause us to ask ourselves, how devoted am I to the Lord? Is my whole person devoted to the Lord? Are my children devoted to the Lord? Am I I laying them on the altar before God and and, and acknowledging that I have a stewardship here, but I, I want them to be wholly devoted to the Lord? I mean, this is really the first call of discipleship in the Christian life. Remember in Mark chapter 8 and verse 35, when Jesus is before the large crowds, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? What will man give in exchange for his soul? And then he goes on to say, in verse 39, I'm sorry, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory with his holy angels. Jesus is saying Christianity 101 is wholesale commitment to Him. Giving yourself, even being willing to take up the death march. That's what it meant to take up your cross. The cross is not your mother-in-law, okay? The cross was an instrument of execution. It was an instrument of Whereby you were saying, I am all in, even if this means hanging publicly on a Roman cross. That's devotion, that's commitment. And we live in a world where increasingly your commitments will be tested. We are in the month of June, after all, so-called pride month, as if they didn't have 11 other months to shove all manner of sexual perversions down our throat. And whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the school, the world around you is saying you must bow. And you have to resolve, am I committed to Yahweh? Am I devoted to Him or will I capitulate to the smiles and frowns of the world around me. Oh, I understand there can be all manner of self-justifications. Where will I work? How will I provide for my family? What about my freedom? But when it's all said and done, we have to take the posture of Daniel's three friends before Nebuchadnezzar and say, our God is able to deliver. But if He doesn't, we will not bow. This is Romans 12, 1, right? In light of this great salvation. The, those first 11 chapters of Romans with, were justified before the Lord, adopted into His family, elected, chosen by Him, headed for glory. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, which is your spiritual service of worship. To be devoted to Him. This was the posture of the New England pastor-theologian. The theologian of the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards. Many of you know he wrote out, I think it's 70 resolutions. Which is is not shocking in itself. What's shocking is that he read them every week for the rest of his life. He, He broke them up into two. One week he would read... 70 and remind himself of the commitments he had made to the Lord and then the next week he would read the other half and he did this for the rest of his life well resolution number four he said resolve never to do any manner of thing whether in soul or body less or more but what tends to the glory of God nor be nor suffer it if I can avoid it Resolution 6, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolution 22, resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence, I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Friends, how committed are you in your whole person to the true and living God? What areas of your life are you still holding on to that you just need to let go of and say, Jesus, you're the King? Have you ever come to that point where you bowed your knee to King Jesus and his, his Lordship and say, You're the boss? If you haven't, then you're not a Christian. You've not yet entered into this covenant relationship where you're forsaking all others and you're keeping yourself only unto Him. But you can in light of His grace, in light of His mercy. And, and this is really what, you know, chapter 27 is on the heels of all of God's gracious dealings with His people and Him, him plucking them out of Egypt, him entering into a covenant relationship, him smothering them with his love, and and now he's calling for them to be devoted to him. Devoting their person to him. But also, secondly, devoting your possessions to Yahweh. Notice in verse 9, Now, if it is an animal of, a, of the kind which men can bring near as an offering to Yahweh, any such one gi- any such that one gives to Yahweh shall be holy. He shall not replace it or exchange it. A good for a bad or a bad for a good. Or if he does exchange animal for animal, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. If, however, it is an unclean animal of the kind which men do not bring near as an offering to Yahweh, then he shall present the animal before the priest. Okay, so this is talking about if you, again, vow certain animals to bring to the Lord, whether through sacrifice as a clean animal or whether it's, uh, you know, an unclean animal that may be a kind of work animal. Either way, you're, you're not allowed to kind of renege on your promise there. You're not allowed to say, you know, well, you know, let me just make a trade here, okay? Now, you may wonder, well, what kinds of unclean animals might one bring to the tabernacle? Well, how about a donkey, Okay? You know, maybe you know. Obviously, a donkey was not one of the animals that would be used in the sacrificial system, but a donkey could be useful to the priests and Levites, right? You know, imagine you think all these different Levites are scattered all throughout Israel. Well, what if a uh, what if a Levite needed a ride to the tabernacle? You know, um, so it could be an Uber donkey. You know, it's common grab Levite's priest, bring him to the tabernacle. So, so this would be you you committing in, in a free will offering, whether it's through sacrifice or just a donation to the Levites, to be faithful to your commitment. Verse 12, "...and the priest shall value it as either good or bad, as you, the priest, value it, so it shall be." but if you should ever wish to redeem it, then he shall add one-fifth of it to your valuation. So let's say a guy donates his donkey and then, you know, maybe the other donkey he has dies. You know, and he's thinking, well, I need a donkey for me to be able to provide for my family. God mercifully and graciously provided a way in which you could humbly go back to the tabernacle and say I'm sorry I know you're really enjoying your new uber donkey but I need to feed my family and so there was a kind of uh, extra service charge to be able to redeem that donkey back namely you had to give 20% more than the value of that donkey and so again this is God highlighting his, something of his mercy and kindnesses in understanding man's weakness and lack of knowledge and and all the circumstances. And then drop your eyes down to verse 30. We see more possessions here. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree belongs to Yahweh. It is holy to Yahweh. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. For every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to Yahweh. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed." So, this is bringing up the matter of tithing. In ancient Israel, there was three different tithes, okay? One tithe was called the Levitical tithe. This is in Numbers chapter 8, verse 21 and 22. It says So now, the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they performed, the service of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting or they will bear their sin and die. So there was a specific tithe that went to the support, uh, the financial support of the Levites because their work was in the tabernacle and they weren't able to do work outside of that. But then there's also the tithe of the feast. Deuteronomy 14, to 25 says, "...you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow." which comes out of the field every year, you shall eat in the presence of Yahweh your God at the place where he chooses for for his name to dwell, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God all your days. And if the distance is so great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe since the place where, uh, where Yahweh your God chooses to set his name is too far from you when Yahweh your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which Yahweh your God chooses. So this is another kind of tithe of your crops where you would, again, normally bring these tithes when you traveled, to one of those annual feasts. Remember the seven feasts of Leviticus, chapter 23, and, and basically you could get to all seven of them if you came three different times of the year. But he's saying, well, well, what if you're so far away that, you know, you, you're tithing, let's say, your tomatoes, but, you know, after two weeks of travel with tomatoes, they're all mushy and nasty and moldy, Okay. So there was a way in which you, two, you could exchange the tomatoes for a monetary value and use that as your tithe. And by the way, tithe literally means from the ten. It's, it's, it's the idea of one out of ten. And then there was another tithe that was every three years at the end of Deuteronomy 14. This, uh, th- this is in 14, 28, and 29. This was the tithe of the poor. So this was not an annual tithe. But this was a, a, a tithe every three years. it says in verse uh, Deuteronomy 14:28, "At the end of every third year you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it within your gates, And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the sojourner and the orphan and the widow who are within your gates shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that Yahweh your God may bless you and all the work of your hand." Which you do. So, this tithe every three years was particular for the orphan, the sojourner, and the widow. Those who are impover- impoverished uh, because they have no parents to feed them, they have no husband to work and feed them, uh, or, or have no connections because they're a sojourner. And so, God provided a way for them to be cared for. And so there, there was these three tithes in the Old Testament, okay? And so now which tithe is Leviticus 27 referring to? I'm not sure. It's, uh, it's almost certainly not the third tithe, but it may be the tithe, for, probably specifically the tithes for the Levites, but it could be the, the tithe of the feast. And I think the, the idea is either way, it really doesn't matter because this is regulating what would happen if you wanted to take your tithe back. What could be done? And again, it's the same idea. 20% more had to be added. If there was certain foods that you gave that were a a tenth of your uh, crop and you needed those back for whatever reason, again, but this is highlighting that the ancient Israelites were called to devote their possessions unto Yahweh. Their stuff. Now, when we think about this as New Testament saints, I know that there are some Christians that teach that this tithe is applicable to New Testament saints. Again, if you think through, there was three tithes, so then that would be 23 and a third percent of your income. Okay, But I think when, when we look at this from a New Testament lens, the, the giving that God calls us to give is not particularly a specific number, whether it's 10% or 23 and a third percent, or every three years, three and a third percent. Uh, but it's the call of giving in light of the gospel. When we read 2 Corinthians chapters 7, 8, and 9, the Apostle Paul, as he's calling the church in Corinth to be generous in helping the saints in Jerusalem out because there was a famine. He brings up the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor for your sake, that you might become rich. And it's in that context that he's calling the Corinthians to be generous, to be generous in their giving. And again, this is what we see, that we're called to be devoted to the Lord with our stuff. Someone has said that, show me a person's bank statement and I will show you their heart. where we spend our monies reveals what's in our heart. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus Himself said when He said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 to 21 He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor do thieves break in and steal for where your treasure is There your heart will be also. So that we're called to commit our stuff as unto the Lord. And again, Jonathan Edwards resolved, Resolution 40, to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I've acted in the best way as I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking, he examined himself every day as to whether even the stuff that he ate and consumed was being done in such a way for god 's glory in devotion to him. and so it's worth us asking ourselves, are we devoted to the Lord in how we use our stuff, even in how tight a grip we have on our stuff. You know, it's that question, do you have possessions or do they have you? Do you have possessions or do the possessions possess you? And in light of the gospel, we're called to be generous towards those in need and for God's good gospel purposes but not only to devote our person, to devote our possessions, to devote our property to Yahweh. What I mean by this, our our estate. Verse 14, drop your eyes back to Leviticus 27, 14. Now if a man sets his house apart as holy to Yahweh, then the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. Yet if the one who sets it apart as holy should wish to redeem his house, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it so that it may be his. So again, same concept. If he wants it back, there was a 20% charge. Verse 16, again, if a man sets apart as holy to Yahweh a portion of the fields of his own possession, then your valuation shall be Proportionate to the seed needed for it a omer of barley seed at a fifth shekel at fifty shekels of silver verse seventeen if he sets apart his field as holy from the year of Jubilee according to the valuation it shall stand, and if he sets apart his field as holy after the Jubilee, however the priest shall calculate the price for him apart his, his field as holy after the Jubilee. I'm sorry, then the priest shall calculate the price for him proportionate to the years that are left until the year of Jubilee and it shall be deducted from your valuation. Verse 19, if the one who sets it apart as holy should ever wish to redeem the field, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it so that it may stand as his own. Verse 20, yet if he will not redeem the field but has sold the field to another man... It may no longer be redeemed. And it shall be that when it reverts in the Jubilee, the field shall be holy to Yahweh, like a field that is devoted. It shall be for the priest as his possession. Or if he sets apart as holy to Yahweh a field which he has bought, which is not a portion of the field of his own possession, then the priest shall calculate for him the amount of the valuation of up to the year of Jubilee, and he shall on that day give your valuation as holy to Yahweh. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to the one from whom he bought it, to whom the possession of the land belongs. Verse 29, the valuation of yours, moreover, shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel shall be twenty geras. So, what do we have going on here? Basically, if you wanted to devote your house, you could devote your house to the Lord. And again, you know, this, this could be where a certain value is placed on, upon the house, which is the most likely scenario. We're saying, my house is devoted to the Lord. And then there would be a, a, a monetary assignment of what the house is worth And then that would be what was given unto the Lord. Or if it was a field, and and in this instance, you may still even harvest on that field, but the proceeds of that field would go to the Levites. There there was a process, of valuation of that field that had to be in relationship to the Jubilee every 50 years because there was a reset button that would be hit when Jubilee came, and so these... This is God regulating the process whereby one could devote their house and their land to the Lord. And then he gives exceptions in verse 26 to 33. However, a firstborn among animals, which, is the, uh, which as a firstborn belongs to Yahweh, no man shall set it apart as holy, whether ox or... Or sheep, it is Yahweh's. was what, what he saying here? You, you can't devote a firstborn unto the Lord because it's already devoted to the Lord. You know, this is like, you know, when a child takes something from another child and then gives it to them. See, I'm giving this to you. No, it was already theirs, right? You actually stole it and then you're acting like you're giving it to them. Verse 27, "...but if it is among the unclean animals, then he shall ransom it according to your valuation and add one-fifth of it, and if it is not redeemed, then, he, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, anything that a man devotes to Yahweh, out of all that he has, of a man or animal or of the fields of his own possession, he shall not, shall not be sold or redeemed." Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to Yahweh. So, there were certain things, certain people groups that were devoted to destruction. Remember, God would say to de- destroy, for instance, the Amalekites, everything. We couldn't then, you know, bring an Amalekite sheep that was supposed to have been Slaughtered already in the destruction, and bring it unto Yahweh, which was remember exactly what saul and and uh, and the other Israelites did in first Samuel chapter fifteen in verse twenty one twenty nine no one may no one who may have been devoted among men shall be ransomed, he shall be surely put to death, so again you couldn't uh, you know somebody who remained in rebellion against Yahweh and and was seeking to fight against Yahweh from one of those city-states in Canaan who was supposed to be destroyed, you couldn't say, well, I'm going to devote him to Yahweh. No, he was supposed to be destroyed with every other rebel in the city. And then drop your eyes down to verse 34. Moses closes the book with this. These are the commandments which Yahweh commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. Well, so what do we learn from this last section? Well, your house, your fields could be devoted unto Yahweh based upon the monetary value of your property. And so, again, while we do not have this System as New Testament believers, we are called to use what God gives us unto His purposes. We are called to use our homes, our houses, for His purposes, for His kingdom purposes. So, my friends, do you open up your house for God's kingdom purposes? Do you use your house as a means for fellowship with other believers? Or even a, as an opportunity to reach out to unbelievers around you. Whether neighbors or coworkers, To give them a window into what the home life of a Christian looks like. We are an odd group. This is what God calls us to. To use... Our property unto his purposes. Clearly, this passage teaches us devotion to the Lord, commitment to him, whether it's our whole person, whether it's our stuff, whether it's our homes, and to be true in our commitments unto the Lord. To when we make promises unto the Lord to carry through with those promises. but if we're honest with ourselves none of us is as devoted or committed as we should be as i mentioned in the opening prayer we we can't even hold fast to our own standards our own rules we make certain resolutions and commitments and don't have the resolve of a Jonathan Edwards to hold through with those commitments. And so, Leviticus, as all of God's law, drives us to look to one who's faithful in all of his commitments. The Lord Jesus Christ, who would give His whole person in devotion as an offering unto the Lord. The one who came down from heaven and clothed himself in real humanity and would say in the Gospel of John chapter 4, it is my food to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. The one who would say in John chapter 10, no one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. The one who would say in Mark ten forty five, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for the many. You see, it is his full-throttled devotion and commitment to Yahweh through his death and resurrection that makes us acceptable before Yahweh. Philippians chapter 2, the one who being in the very form of God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Jesus is the devoted one. He is the fully committed one. And we need to trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You that in Christ we have full devotion to You. A perfect record of vow-keeping and promises kept. Because apart from Him, we are unfaithful. So we lay hold of the great covenant keeper this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.